invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John 1, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A sense of reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being called by your name. We thank you for the privilege of being called children of God. We thank you for the great blessings that entails for us, and we thank you for the great blessings of your word. Lord, as your word is open this morning, we pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that you would cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. Lord, may this preaching be blessed unto the edification of your people and unto the conversion of sinners, of those who don't know you. We ask now that you would be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up again our new series in John's Gospel, and we are still now in John's prologue. If you remember last week, we saw that John introduces his Gospel to us by going back to the beginning, to an even earlier point than the beginning of Genesis, in order to show that before creation, before God made the heavens and the earth, there was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, verse 14 held our key to know what was meant by the Word. As verse 14 reads, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who is this word, this eternal Logos? Verse 14 tells us the only Son from the Father. Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh. So John introduces us to the person of Christ, but he begins his story thousands of years earlier than the other Gospels do. He begins his story thousands of years before any angels appeared to any shepherds or any star had appeared in the East. He was in the beginning with God. In his prologue, we've also seen that John has begun introducing themes that will recur throughout the rest of his Gospel. And so in this way, the prologue functions as something of a table of contents, or perhaps even as a summary of John's gospel. So to this point, we have been introduced to Christ as the eternal word of God. We've seen Christ is not a created being, but as we saw last week, he is eternal, 
uncreated. And in fact, it was even through him and for him that all things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And that brings us to our text for this morning. Let's read together from verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness about the light to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, I mentioned last week that I first memorized this passage as a child in Sunday school and that although I could recite it, I did not understand a word of it. Now, this verse was another one which confused me, right? So we're reading the gospel according to John. And right here in verse 6, we hear of a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, what does every kid, or at least me, uh, assume about this John? Well, we assume that this John must be the author of the book, right? Gospel of John, verse 6. A man from God whose name was John. That sounds like a good connection, right? Uh, but this is not the case. So which John is this in verse 6? Well, let's look at what the text says about him. He came as a witness to the light, as a witness to Christ. And the author is quick to point out that this John himself was not the light, but came only as a testimony to the light. Well, as we'll read Later in John 1, John the Baptist was a man who was asked if he was the Messiah. And so John, the Apostle John here in his prologue, is quick to point out, no, this man was not himself the light, but only as came as a witness to the light. And yes, as I mentioned, this is John the Baptist mentioned in verse 6. The son of Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary, mother of Jesus. And so John the Baptist was Jesus' second cousin. Uh, John the Baptist, as we'll look at next week, was the forerunner. A prophet who was sent by God to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Now the author of this gospel will later identify himself as the beloved disciple. Or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, he says at the end, this is the one who who writes these things down, who is testifying to these things, who bear, bears witness. Um, and we know John the Baptist was not one of the disciples of Jesus. Rather, he was the forerunner. So, the beloved disciple, as we'll cover, was John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, the Apostle John, also the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And so the John mentioned in verse 6 is John the Baptist and not the author of this gospel. And now we come to the point... John the Baptist came, and he was sent from God. Now, Luke's gospel gives us some more detail about John the Baptist. We actually see there that an angel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and told him that his wife would bear a son who would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the womb, and that he would go forth to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this was John the Baptist's task to prepare the way for the Messiah. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist came as a witness pointing toward the light. He was the forerunner for the Messiah, testifying about that light. Notice the purpose. That all might believe through him. And here John introduces us to a, if not the, major theme of his gospel. By my count, the word believe in some form appears in the gospel of John nearly 100 times. And the vast majority of those instances are about believing in Jesus. And we'll come back to this later. Verse 8 says of John the Baptist, He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John testified about one who would come after him. Uh, John himself was not the light, but after John was coming the light of the world, the true light, which gives light to everyone. And that raises an interesting question. In what sense does Christ give light to everyone? Well, some people take this as a statement about salvation, right? Christ is light to all in that he provides the opportunity of salvation to all people. Now, the problem with that interpretation is that the text is more specific than this. Notice it does not say that Christ is the possibility of light to everyone, but that he is the true light which gives light to everyone. So if receiving light from Christ was to be taken as a metaphor for salvation, that would force us into universalism. The idea that all people will be saved, right? No hell, no judgment, just universal salvation. And that would make verse 9 directly contradictory to verses 10 and 11. For as John goes on to say, not everyone received Christ. Not everyone received the light. And so another possibility comes if we back up to verse 4 and remember that Christ was the original light of men in creation. And so this view would have John restating the fact that it was from Christ, the Logos, that man received the light of rationality, uh, the light of knowledge, of wisdom, and even the capacity to think. Now, this one could be plausible. In this sense, it would be accurate to say that Christ has given light to everyone, that he is the source of light for mankind. Um, and yet a third possibility suggested by D.A. Carson, this is the view uh, that I would take here, is that the light which shines on every man is a way of dividing the human race. Christ shines on all men, and those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by the light. But some receive this revelation and thereby testify that their deeds have been done through God, to quote from John. D.A. Carson continues, In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction this light shines upon every man, whether he sees it or not. 
Now, one of the challenging things with knowing how to interpret John is that he seems to be deliberately ambiguous at times. He seems to be deliberately saying things that can be taken in multiple ways. Uh, Commentator Leon Morris writes this, John is fond of using expressions that have more than one meaning. If it happened only occasionally, we might regard it as coincidence and make a serious effort to decide between the two meanings. But it happens so often it must be regarded as deliberate. It is John's way of bringing out the fuller meaning of whatever term he is using, close quote. And I think we have this several times throughout the prologue. John may be intending to say both of these things. Christ is the light which initially gave light and knowledge and rationality to all men. And he is also the light which shines into the darkness of sin and rebellion and exposes men's works and their hearts. Now, John's prologue seems to have a number of statements like this that could work on multiple levels, which makes the task of explaining and simplifying rather challenging. Continuing on, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So God, the son, the eternal word became a man. He entered into his own creation. He came into the world that he made. And even though he was the maker, the world did not know him. The world did not recognize him, did not receive him as Lord, master, and creator. He came to his own, his own people, his own covenant people, to the Jews, whom he had set apart, given them his law, sent his prophets, and even prophesied his coming. And as we'll read throughout John, his own people did not receive him. Broadly speaking, the Jews rejected their own Messiah. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now we'll unpack this further in a moment, but let us zoom in for now on that word become. It says to those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now that's quite something. That even might go against the grain. If those who received Christ were granted the privilege of becoming the children of God, what does that imply? It implies that they were not always the children of God. So catch this, not all people are the children of God. Now, of course, in one sense, as Paul says to the Athenians, we are all God's offspring, Acts 17, 28. But the point he's making there 
is that we are all the offspring of God in the sense that we are all created by him. But John is quite clearly talking about something else here. For if all people were by nature the children of God in the way that John means, it would be nonsensical to say that anyone became a child of God. So this is very important if we're going to understand the fullness of what John means. The fact is, Scripture is clear. We are not God's children by nature. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we'll read verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we'll look at what kind of children we are by nature. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul says to the church, to the Christians in Ephesus, you were dead in your sins. You were following the ways of the world. You followed the devil you lived in the passions of your flesh, and you were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature, not the children of God. Now, Scripture teaches that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, all mankind sinned in him and fell with him. We see that in Romans 5.12. And so we are now born as sinners, dead in transgression and sin. Jesus says, slaves to sin, John 8.34. We are born as sinners, by nature following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so if you are still in this condition if you are still dead in your transgression and sin, if you are following the world, the flesh, and the devil, God is not your heavenly father. You may not call on him as a child to a father. What is your appeal? Why should God listen to you? Would you point to your own good works as something God should esteem? Do you think you can put God into your debt by doing good works that he would owe you something? Your good works are nothing. Apart from Christ, they are filthy rags. As Isaiah even says, menstrual cloths. Is that what you would appeal to? Is that what you would appeal to? you will be cast out into outer darkness. By nature, you have no right to the privileges of the sons of God. You are not among their number. God is not your father. God is your judge. 
By nature, you are a child of wrath. And if you remain in this state, you have nothing to look forward to but the eternal wrath of God, justly poured out on you for eternity in hell. But, and this is why John wrote this gospel, there is good news. God so loved the world that he sent the true light into the world. Verse 12, and to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. This offer is to all. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in his name, and you may become a child of God. John says this is the very reason he wrote this gospel. John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To believe in Jesus is to trust in him. To believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, to believe that he died on the cross for sins and rose again. Faith in Jesus Christ is receiving and resting on him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. We receive Christ as Lord and Savior. We throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, having recognized our need for a Savior. We are trusting the promise that those who come to him in faith will become the children of God. You, sinner, though you stand condemned right now in the sight of a holy God, you can become a child of God. It is not through your own works. It is not through making your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. But rather, as this text shows us, it is through receiving Christ and believing in his name. Now next week is Reformation Day. Monday the 31st will be 505 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which is the event that is commonly credited as having sparked the Protestant Reformation. Now one of the major debates of the Reformation and why we love to celebrate it uh, was this exact question. How can a sinner be made right with God? How can we be justified? And the Roman Catholic Church's answer was a perpetual treadmill of good works, cooperating with God's grace, earning merit, doing penance, buying indulgences, all these different things people must do. The answer of the Reformation, which marked a great recovery of gospel truth, was the cry, sola fide, by faith alone. And so we love to retell the stories of the Reformation and celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in recovering the gospel, bringing the scriptures to the people, and reforming the church through flawed men 
like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and Knox. It is not faith plus works. Rather, we are declared righteous before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By faith, we are justified, that is to be declared righteous before the judge, as Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. But then, we receive further blessings. Now, the gospel is like a multifaceted diamond. It has many sides that create a new glimmer or sparkle with the slightest rotation in any direction. And so here, guys, is the importance of studying theology. We can draw out many aspects of what God has done for us and therefore go deeper than we would otherwise be able to. For example, you can think a person with a very shallow understanding might be able to thank God for salvation in very generic terms. And that is wonderful. Praise God for spiritual milk and childlike faith. But can we not go deeper than this? Should we not go deeper than this? Yes. God in his word has given us many details and shown us the different facets of our salvation. He gave us this revelation in his word for a reason. And that is he wants us to see and know the full beauty of the gospel. To see that diamond glittering beautifully as we examine its many sides and facets. Just consider, as Savior, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. He is our mediator. He has made propitiation. He has imputed his righteousness to us. Our salvation includes, involves our election, calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and finally glorification. Every one of these and so many more are the various facets of salvation, each one of them being tremendous fodder for meditation that would bless and encourage us as we grow to understand them. So studying and understanding these things brings depth, maturity, and will increase our awe, wonder, and gratitude for the incomparable riches that we have in Christ. So let us take some time and unpack the glories of the gospel, of this facet of the gospel, what it means to become a child of God. The doctrine of adoption. Now, firstly, as I mentioned, adoption is a blessing distinct from justification. Beaky and Jones write that justification is the primary fundamental blessing of the gospel it meets our most basic spiritual need, forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We could not be adopted without it. But adoption is a richer blessing because it brings us from the courtroom into the family. It's a richer blessing because it brings us from the courtroom into the family. So not only has our judge forgiven all our sins and accounted us as righteous in his sight, but 
He has adopted us as his own children. We are received into the number of the children of God and have a right to all the privileges they receive. We are full-blown family members with everything that entails. We now relate to God as Father. Through our union with Christ, we join in his sonship. And because we are joined to Christ, we too are received as beloved children. Our relationship to God has been forever changed. Now, those of us who have grown up in and around the church can miss how truly radical this is. Just think, for God the Creator, the one whom you have sinned against, God not only forgives you through Christ, but further invites you into his family, calls you his child, invites you to relate to him as father. We may now relate to God in personal, familial terms. God says things like this. Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As a father shows compassion to his children. Now, having been a father for a few years now, this really hits home with me. When my child is really scared or hurt and comes running to me looking for comfort, my heart floods with compassion for my children. I want them to come, wrap their little arms around my neck, and just soak the shoulders of my shirt with their tears until they feel better. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He knows how weak we are, how we need his help. We are just dust. And he looks on our weakness and need like a good father has compassion on his little children. This blessing of adoption is that we may relate to God as Father. Secondly, as God's children, we may now come to Him as a Father with our prayers and petitions. Remember, how did Jesus teach His disciples to pray? They came and asked Him, Teach us to pray, Lord. Jesus said, Pray then like this Matthew 6 9. Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. The Westminster Catechism asks, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? Answer, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father which art in heaven, teacheth us to draw near to God in all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father ready and willing to help us. 
and that we should pray with and for others. So God, having adopted us as his children, having become our father, now invites us into his presence. We are to come near as children with the reverence due to a father, but also with the confidence that we have a good father, both ready and willing to help us. So there is a closeness that this should bring to our prayers. We are not coming to a stranger in prayer. We are coming to our own beloved father. Now, my daughter Alessia is now one and a half years old. And we've all heard her this morning. Um, but when she wants to be held, she will come and will pull on your pant leg to turn, to turn me toward her. It doesn't matter what I'm doing, how full my hands are. She does not give up easily. She will tug and tug, trying to turn me toward her. will look up with those big round eyes and say, Daddy, up. And I think this is a perfect image for how we ought to be in prayer. Remember, Jesus told us in Luke 18 that we ought to always pray and not give up, to be like the persistent widow who kept coming again and again and again, coming to God in prayer. And I think we ought to tug like that, coming to our Heavenly Father in prayer. I think if we could really grasp the glories of adoption, it would drive us to prayer. Christian, God is your Father, ready and willing to help you. He knows your weakness. He has compassion on you. He has told you to come persistently in prayer. So don't be shy to come to your father for help. He is no stranger. He is no distant and unapproachable deity sitting too far away to hear or to care. No. He is our compassionate heavenly father. Come to him persistently in prayer with reverent boldness and holy familiarity. Next, as God's children, we have been given his spirit. Romans 8 says that the presence of God's Holy Spirit is actually proof that we are his children. Romans 8, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So catch that, if you are led by the Spirit of God, you are a son of God. So if we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, sanctifying us, leading us, this is part of how we may know that we are children of God. And so this touches on the question of assurance. Right? How can we truly know we are God's children. Well, we can ask, are we being led by the Spirit? If you remember back to our Galatian series, we saw the contrast between walking by the flesh and walking by the Spirit. We saw the desires of our sinful nature are against 
the desires of the Spirit. They are opposed to each other. They are pulling in two opposite directions. Your sinful nature, the flesh, pulls you towards sin and selfishness. But the Spirit of God will lead you toward holiness and true love for God. So if you want to know, am I truly a child of God, ask this question. Do you have true love for God? Is he first in your heart? Do you love him for who he is in himself? This kind of love is not something that natural man can produce in himself. And so if you do have true love for God, this is glorious evidence that the Spirit of God has removed your heart of stone and has given you a heart that works. Jonathan Edwards writes in commenting on this passage in Romans, It is perfect love, or strong love only, which so witnesses or evidences that we are children as to cast out fear and wholly deliver us from the spirit of bondage. The strong and lively exercises of a spirit of childlike, evangelical, humble love to God give clear evidence of the soul's relation to God as his child, which does very greatly and directly satisfy the soul. Close quote. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you desire evidence or assurance that you are a true child of God, then look for evidences of the Spirit's working. There are certain things that Scripture tells us man cannot do apart from the Spirit of God. A man who is dead in transgression and sin cannot make himself alive. A man with a heart of stone cannot make his own heart love God. And so if you have spiritual life, if you have true love for God, if you see the fruit of the Spirit increasing in you, if you are being led by the Spirit, if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, if you have received him and believed in his name, these are all marks of grace upon your soul. These are wonderful evidences that you are a child of God. For as the next verse in John shows us, it is actually only through the work of the Spirit that we can come to faith in Christ, an idea that we will unpack as we work through John. John 12, 1, 12 to 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here we are introduced to another theme that we will see again in John. And that is the need to be born again, or to be born of God. In John 3, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that nobody can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Remember, Nicodemus was confused and he asks a bit of a silly question. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? <laughs> And be born. And so Jesus explains it is not a physical or natural birth of which he speaks. As the prologue shows us, 
It is not a birth of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but you must be born of God. So catch this. Your physical descent, your bloodline, avails nothing. Even to be descended from Abraham does not make you a child of God. As Jesus will tell the Jews, though they claimed Abraham was their father, what does Jesus say? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So to bring this home, kids, to be born into a Christian home does not ensure your salvation. Notice the true children of God are not born of blood nor of the will of man. And so your heritage even if you've been descended from generations of Christians, this does not automatically punch your ticket to heaven. You must be born again. You must receive and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must be born of God. And as we work through John, we'll dive into the relationship between saving faith and the work of the Spirit. But let us just now simply note John's emphasis in the prologue. Jesus Christ is the light. The light shone in the world as Jesus came into the world, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, his own covenant people. He came and taught in the very temple that had been built to worship him, and his own people did not receive him. Everything in our lives hinges upon whether or not we will receive Christ. By nature, we are not God's children, not by birth, not by bloodline, but we are all born, fallen in Adam, children of wrath. But those who do receive Christ, those who believe in his name, will be granted the right to become children of God. Christ is the hinge upon which everything turns. It is only through his work that we can be made right with God. It is through union with Christ that we may share in his sonship. It is because Christ paid the debt of sin upon the cross. It is because Christ provided our righteousness through his perfect life of obedience to God's law that we can now be accepted as God's children. And as we've seen, to become a Christian, to become a child of God, involves a transformation. For a true child of God has been born again. They have had their heart of stone removed and have been given a heart that works, a heart with the law of God inscribed upon it. They have been given new desires, true love for God, an earnest desire in all things to further the glory of God, a sincere desire to do his will in all things with cheerfulness, a desire to continually battle sin, being led by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh.
a true child of God, does not live for themselves. They do not live on their own terms, but they seek in all things to please their heavenly Father. For this is the direction that the Holy Spirit will lead. And as we saw, it is those who are led by the Spirit of God who are the children of God. And finally, to be a child of God is to be an heir of God. Continuing in Romans, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. To be an heir of God is to be a fellow heir with Christ. Now an heir, H-E-I-R, is a child who receives an inheritance. Beaky and Jones write that under Roman law, adoption was a legal act by which a man chose someone outside of his family to be an heir to his inheritance. Likewise, believers become children of God through the gracious act of God the Father who chooses them to be his heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Now just think for a moment of what it truly is to be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. In verses 1 to 5, we saw that it was through Christ that all things have been made. He is the firstborn. He is the true and natural heir of all things. He is not a created being. Rather, he is the eternal son of God through whom and for whom all things have been made. And so it is a glory beyond imagining for sinners like us to be adopted into the family of God and called joint heirs, fellow heirs, with the one through whom and for whom all things were made. So follow this glorious logic. If all things in existence were made through and for the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is the true and proper heir of literally everything, and then scripture says, you, born-again Christian, are a fellow heir with Christ, a joint heir with Christ, then brothers and sisters, all things are yours. All things are are yours through Christ. The inheritance of Christ is one that we will receive with him. Paul prays in Ephesians that we would understand this. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are, get this, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let this be your prayer as well, especially if you are facing difficulties, if you face suffering, trials, tribulations here on earth, then pray that God would enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you would remember that you have been adopted as a child of God and so that you would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. For the Apostle Paul, reflecting on this was one of the things that brought him tremendous comfort in suffering. Consider Romans 8, 18, continuing from where we left there. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or as he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God through faith in Christ, all things are yours. The riches of the glorious inheritance that you will receive is so overwhelmingly wonderful that Paul says it is not even worth comparing the sufferings of this life to it. Weighty though they may be. All things are yours. Eternal life. Heavenly rewards. Blessings beyond comprehension. Chief among them all, a blessing that we have access to already. The love of God. The chief blessing of heaven, the desire of every redeemed heart, is God himself. As Jesus prays, John 17, 23, that we may share in the love that the Father has for the Son. Through our union with Christ, we share in his sonship. We are loved by God as his Son is loved. We have been given the right to become the children of God. Brothers and sisters, meditate this day on the glories of your adoption. 1 John 3 verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Amen.